brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to Jyoti Patel, the winner of the 2021 Murky Books New Writer Prize. Her debut novel, The Things That We Lost, was published this year and tells the story of Nick, who, whilst dealing with the death of his grandfather, digs into his family's past to unlock secrets about the father he never met. It has been chosen as one of the Observer's best debut novels of 2023 and has been variously described as deftly assured, a thoughtful meditation on family, grief and the lengths we'll go to to protect the ones we love and one of the best books we've read this year. So I'm beyond delighted to have the opportunity to talk to her today. Jyoti Patel, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you so much, Nihal. It's such a joy to be here today. No, it's great to have you here. When you hear these words, deftly assured, a thoughtful meditation, one of the best books we've read. Do you automatically connect that with your own work? Or do you kind of look over your shoulder and think, oh, 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 they're talking about me? It's definitely the latter. And it's something that I'm trying to work on. Yeah, it takes a while for them to sink in. This quiet little book that I wrote thinking it was probably never going to be published, or if so, it'd be many years of trying and failing. So it just means a lot because I've always wanted to write and I've always wanted to be an author. And with this story particularly, I feel like I took a lot of risks that would not be conducive to such beautiful words being prescribed to it. So it's just, it makes it even more special, I think, that I came from the heart. What were the risks you took? The story follows a British Gujarati family. And one of the conversations I had with my editor when we were sort of in the process of getting it ready for publication was, you know, the fact that I choose to have, firstly, the, the vernacular of like Northwest London slang of 18-year-old Nick when he's chatting to his friends and when he's growing up, but also the Gujarati. I chose to include a lot of Gujarati in the book. And I don't translate the Gujarati, I don't have a glossary, and I don't italicise the Gujarati. And that's not a decision that would typically be chosen by a writer. You know, I've always picked up books where languages other than English are italicised and you're really holding the reader's hand. But I wanted this book to be a very literal and pure look at what it would be like for a family like mine to exist in, in the world of literature, a British Gujarati family who do switch between English and Gujarati. And I wanted the reader to come and meet me where I am and where these characters are, as opposed to being overly apologetic for putting Gujarati in the book. So that's an example of a decision that I thought this book might be a bit harder to sell. It might not be as successful. Um, so it just means so much more that even like the reviews from, you know, The Observer and The Guardian and the TLS recently, they pick out in their sort of critiques and their reviews and they say it works well. So it just means so much. We're often just seen as this catch-all term, Asian. I'm of Sri Lankan heritage, you're of Gujarati heritage. And they're so different. There are similarities, but they're so different. Why was it important for you, for me as the reader, to understand Gujarati or British Gujarati culture? There's so many British Gujaratis in the UK and the way that we perform our culture is so unique as well because you'll have Gujaratis in Gujarat who perform their culture one way, then Gujaratis, like many of my friends who've come straight from India, and they perform their dual identity in a certain way too. 
But then the family in the book, and like my family, are part of the Gujaratis who moved to England via East Africa in the late 60s and early 70s. Now, our culture is Gujarati, British, but then there's little speckles of Kenyan culture too, because my family lived in Kenya for many years. And I really wanted to show an authentic portrayal of that kind of Indian or South Asian, because you know, this isn't a South Asian book, it's a British Gujarati Kenyan story. And that nuance is so important to have these characters living authentically. And it's meant so much particularly to have British Gujaratis and specifically British Gujaratis who came here via East Africa messaging me and saying to me, like, it's so cool to see the nuances and tiny little moments of our experiences captured in literature. Because to be Indian, I never thought that I'd see authentic portrayal of this culture in books. You know, I remember being so taken when I read like um, The Namesake by Jim Lahiri, which follows a Bengali American family and thinking, God, there's so much similarity there, but it's a totally different world. But even that small amount of similarity meant so much to me. So I just wanted to give British Gujarati kids something to look at and to feel like we're allowed to exist within the folds of literature and within the folds of a book on British bookshelves. So Is it interwoven in every sentence or is it something that's added after you have successfully navigated your way through what is a universal subject about family and about love and about secrets and about the unmasking of those secrets and what they do to families? There's a universality in that. Or is it everything happening simultaneously? I think it it definitely happened simultaneously for me to create sort of an authentic family and an authentic story. Their identity needed to be very much on the page from the beginning. It's certainly something that I toned up and that I brought out more as I was editing when I felt confident enough to make those decisions and to be a bit more heavy handed and not to be so reticent and afraid of what the reader might think. The identity of the characters and the nuance of being British, Gujarati, Kenyan has always been there throughout because I think that's the way I sort of layered it on as I built the story. But it was there from the start because it's so integral to the whole thing. And what of the distance that Avani feels from India? There's almost a guilt about not being connected to India. And then, of course, that plays out at various stages of her life where she goes back to India And usually that's through grief. What about your own connection to India? Because it's almost a connection that's interrupted by Africa. Yeah, it's a very interesting question, actually, because my family, as as far as I know, we don't really have any close family or friends in Gujarat. We have some distant family. I wouldn't know their names. And for me, my experience of India was more so of Bangalore, which is in the south. So my ethnicity and my family's culture is from Gujarat, which is the West. But when my dad was in sort of the mid-90s, my dad had a job in Bangalore. So the family moved to Bangalore. And I feel like I have more an affinity with the culture of Bangalore and the food of Bangalore and the the traditions of Bangalore, because we, we lived there for a couple of years and then we returned there every summer. And like you said earlier, you know, India itself is so diverse. So Every single state pretty much has its own language and religion and ways to drape a sari. And it's such a rich history and culture in every state. So 
I feel such an affinity to Bangalore and I don't really feel an affinity to Gujarat, the place, but I feel a great affinity to the culture of Gujarat because it's, you know, I speak Gujarati, we eat Gujarati food. So my experience of India is similar to Avani and to Nick in the book, is that of a distance and sort of seeing it with the Western lens too and being able to see India for what it is, but then also being able to see the India we've been fed through the arts and through the media and through the Western romanticised lens of it. And then it's feeling like the disconnect and the dissonance between those two things. And then also being, you know, British Gujarati and British Indian and having our own ways to perform that culture too. It's really fascinating because... All of my interactions with West African Asians, whether they be Sikh, Muslim or Hindu, they're very different to those people who are Punjabi from the Punjab and they trace their heritage directly to. And one of the reasons I've been given is because West African Asians grew up in a much more pluralistic society where they celebrated each other's religious customs, they were in and out of each other's houses. When it was Diwali, Muslims would come. When it was Eid, Hindus and Sikhs would celebrate. It makes for an interesting mix, whereas Gujarat, as you'll be well aware, has had extreme religious tension, hasn't it? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And it is, of course, the state where Narendra Modi comes from as well, of course. Does that complicate your relationship with Gujarat as well? Hugely. I remember speaking to my dad a few years ago when everything was you know, starting to kick off and he said like, it was the first time he felt even a small amount of shame saying that he's Indian. And I felt the same because it's just so different to the India of centuries ago. And it is really sad seeing India being torn apart in that way. If I were to say Jyoti Patel's home from home is, where would that be? There have been so many homes from homes, if I'm honest with you. You know, I think of good friends of mine, Nat and Callum, who live in Norfolk, who I would always call my home from home because they were there, not because of the place, but because they were there. I think of my dad's home in Bangalore in the valley there, where I spent most summers growing up. Now I think of my mum's house, which is where I grew up, because I have my own home and I live in my own place. So for me, it's more about the people in those spaces as opposed to the places themselves. What aspects of your character do you think are most Western? Oh, you know, I've never thought about that before. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is the privilege of being able to do what I do, I see as a Western influence. So the privilege of being able to say that I'm an author, of having a literature degree, of having a master's in creative writing, those things weren't afforded to my parents or my grandparents or my great-grandparents because of what they were born into and the struggles that they had. I'm, I feel like I'm the first generation in my family who had the privilege of being able to go to university and study a non-vocational degree and take a risk studying an art for the sake and because I loved it. And for me, that's a very Western privilege characteristic or trait to my character and to my life. I'm sure I've got uncles and grandparents who would have loved to have this privilege. So I see that as a Western thing. I see it as, you know, my parents having you know, moved many times in their lives and then coming to England and setting up their home and finding success and finding stability finally, which is something that they hadn't had for a couple of generations because of all those moves. And because of that, I was allowed, you know, from this place of stability and security to go and to follow my dream. And that's, for me, a Western characteristic. And what with considering the kind of journey that your ancestors made from India to Africa... What do you consider to be your Indian characteristics? So I feel like 
that's more in like the soul of me and the DNA of me. And like, I think of the values that I have in terms of like the way my parents raised me, my parents, you know, they're, they're Hindu. And I feel like I have a lot of those values and traditions in me in ways that I don't, I'm not even aware of really. Um, it's only when I come back and I think about it. And I feel like certainly something that's very Indian about me and that I perform very much is like the the language. I love the Gujarati language, but also the food element. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people would say. And that's why, again, in the novel, there's so much reference to Gujarati food, because I feel like it makes up so much of our our culture in many ways. It's a great source of pride in, in my family too, like feeding people and coming together over food. And it's something that I think a lot of my British friends also see in me that I'm constantly trying to feed them. <laughs> so I'd say that's, you know, those values around generosity or compassion or specifically feeding people are definitely something that I think has come up a lot through my mum and through the Gujarati parts of my family. Have you ever questioned how Asian you are and or am I being too desi here? No, you're you're 100% on the money with that and that's actually where this whole novel came from. You know, I, I remember living, I was living outside of London, I was living in Norfolk because I was studying there and I came from a group of white British friends and I felt very much, you know, in certain moments I would feel this and in, on that day I very much felt like I was the Indian one or there was something different about me and I felt really disconnected in that way. And then I went straight from that experience to um, a friends of a family's party in, in London where there was all British Gujaratis from Northwest London. And again, I felt so disconnected because I was seen as the white one or the British one or the one who'd gone off to study English and fancied herself a writer, you know. And I remember on that one day feeling so much like I don't belong to either group. And of course, I feel a huge sense of belonging now with like my friends, you know, it's like five years after that experience and I've really found my people. But at that time, I remember moving from these different groups and just feeling so disconnected from both. And that's literally, it was that day that I started writing the novel because I wanted to explore that that feeling through a fictional lens of these two characters, one growing up in 70s and 80s and then one in, you know, we meet them in 2017, 2018. And I wanted to look at those two points in British history and look at what it would feel like to be someone who's both British and Indian during those two moments in, in Britain's history. Were the questions of your Asianness coming from without, from within, or both? I think it was certainly both. I think, you know, being a British Gujarati girl, there were lots of questions about, you know, the way that I should be, how much space I'm allowed to take up in the world as a, as a Gujarati woman from, you know, the Gujaratis in my life, how many opinions I was allowed to have. And I think growing up, I was certainly a kid with the biggest dreams and the loudest voice and the most energy. And so much of my childhood, I think I was stifling that down and trying to be smaller and more convenient, which I, I think is such a shame. And it's taken me a long time to like come back out of my shell again. So, so a lot of that was outside, but then also within, because those ways of thinking, they infiltrate your own mind. Of course they do. They condition the way you think about yourself. And I always felt this huge sense of that I wasn't the good Gujarati granddaughter or daughter and, I, and I, that I wasn't performing that role properly. But I decided, you know, it was more important to be happy and to live authentically. And that's just what I did. And it annoyed a lot of people. And it was interesting as well, because when I published the book, a lot of my family were really interested that I wrote about a British Gujarati family and that I spoke so much about the community in the book. 
and they've sort of come back and now they're proud of me. And I'm like, I've always been this person. I've always had these things to say. I just explore them and say them in a very different way to how you expect it, I think. Did that extend to who you felt you were allowed to fall in love with? I think definitely when I was younger, but luckily for me, even though I have extended family and like friends who are very much conditioned and very much aware that they would only be accepted and happy if they fall in love with like the right kind of, not only person, but the right kind of Indian, but the right kind of Gujarati, you know, that's the level of detail. And the right cast um, sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, yeah, it's such a labyrinth. But for me, I was really lucky because my parents, unfortunately, or you could look at it fortunately, they divorced when I was a kid and they were the first couple, I think, that they knew really who had been married with kids who had a divorce. And it was a big taboo at the time. So I think their view of marriage was very different to the Gujaratis around them. And, you know, my dad's family have always been very mixed. So a couple of my dad's brothers married British women and my stepmom's Polish and my mum's family too sort of by the sort of noughties or my, my aunties were starting to sort of bring home British boyfriends and, and marry into British families and our family as a whole is much more I think open and liberal than like a lot of other Gujarati families around us I think because of that I feel a lot freer and I've been able to like bring home wherever I wanted to bring home and introduce my parents to the people that I've dated in a way that my friends wouldn't be able to. And I'm really grateful for that because I think there's so many other things that I've struggled with in being myself within my family. But that's one thing that even though when I was younger, I thought would be a struggle, it turned out not to be. It's extraordinarily brave of your mother to have done what she did. There's no disrespect to your father, but that generation, for a woman to leave, a Gujarati, any Asian woman to leave, is can be an act of social leprosy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really spot on. Um, I remember being a kid and they were like the first Gujarati, well, the first people who looked like them that I could really attribute the word divorce to. Um, I since found out that I think one of my dad's brothers had had a divorce many years before, but it was like a very quick one. There were no kids involved. My parents were married for about seven years. Um, but I think that experience really did impact the way that I thought about family units. And even though I've written so many different kinds of stories growing up and I've written stories from perspectives that aren't British Indian. The one thing that I haven't really been able to do or want to do really is look at a family unit that's like intact, just because I don't know how to do that. And I think that's because of my family's history. I'm not just the divorce, but also like other parts of the family that, you know, families are just so full of secrets and so full of breaks in different ways. And I think all of my work in some way has looked at relationships, whether they're in a family or not, but relationships between people and what happens when cracks form and breaks form, whether it's mothers and daughters or couples or friends. I'm so attracted to the psychology behind what happens when things start to go wrong. And I think a lot of that obviously comes from watching a divorce as a kid. Quite often in my years on the BBC Asian Network, when I hosted a phone-in show for many years, we constantly were told how Asians don't want our dirty linen out in public. We will do whatever we can to sweep under the carpet the most egregious acts and behaviour. Do you think that, and you can only talk from British Gujarati perspective on this, 
Do you think there is something distinct about this? Or do you think it's uniform across cultures? I think it's definitely something that I've seen a lot of in the British Gujarati community. But I think when we think about it, it shows up in so many different communities, just in different ways. I was at a book club a couple of months ago talking about the book and how, you know, how in the book Avni's mother, her biggest fear is that her daughter is going to become too British. And her biggest fear is this idea of like, what will people say? And in the book club, there were some women who were raised, you know, in the North and from the generation above me. And they were saying like their parents' biggest fear was what will the neighbours say? What will the neighbours think? And again, I have friends from different cultures who I think it's it's very much rooted in like the immigrant experience as well of this idea of like coming to the UK and having to show and prove that you've held on to your values so much so that sometimes the people and the communities that you've left behind in the country that you left move on and progress in a way that you don't because you're so determined to show that you're still part of that country. So that's certainly something that I see across immigrant communities. But then also I think it's a big part of British culture as well. We're so proud as a nation and so much of what it means to be British is to have this stiff upper lip and to not air your laundry out. So I think you get it from both sides being British, Indian. Is it also instilled in you in your own life And the way that you find yourself able to open up those secrets is through writing. Yeah, I think, I mean, I was listening to Damil Galgu on your your podcast and he was talking about like how so much of being a writer is just observing. And when you're someone who's introverted, often because you don't say much, people think you don't hear much. So people will speak when you're around. Now I'm very extroverted, but one of my best friends who I mentioned earlier, Nat, um, is really introverted and we used to work together. And I remember afterwards we'd go out for like drinks and stuff and she'd say, oh, did you hear this? And did you hear that? And I, I realized people were speaking around her because she said so little. So they almost thought she doesn't listen, which is the opposite. So much of being a writer is just observing. And as a kid, I used to observe so much. I used to watch. And I think a lot of that was because there was a lot of turmoil in the family unit. And I was constantly watching to see if there was going to be an argument. And that just became my way of being. So now, whether I'm sitting on a bus daydreaming or whether I'm in a meeting in my day job, I'm always watching people and predicting who's going to say what or noticing when someone's upset when other people can't notice. And I think that really is conducive to being a good writer is just being aware and noticing the things that other people don't so that you can portray that in your writing and to see the connections that other people miss because they're doing other things. What are the corrosive aspects, Jyoti, of trying to be something that is based solely on the expectations of others? This is a really interesting question again. And I think it's something that I've lived my whole life in opposition to. I have very much been aware of the expectations put on me as a woman, as a British Gujarati, as a daughter, as every role that I play. And I've been very conscious my whole life to live authentically and to live in a way that's going to make me happy, not in like a selfish way, but in a way that I know, for example, I would have never been happy being a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. So I was very clear when I was younger that I wasn't going to do that. I'm also very aware that, you know, the sort of person that my my grandparents or my aunties and uncles might think that I'd be happy with is certainly not the sort of person I'd be happy with. <laughs> so I've always been very sure of myself, I think, 
very quietly sure of what's going to lead me to happiness and what is going to bring me joy. And if I can get to that without causing as little disturbance as possible, I will. Because I agree, I think if you live your life in other people's shadows and with the expectations of what people are putting on you and saying you this is how you be you how you're a dutiful child this is how you're a dutiful grandkid dutiful wife whatever it is dutiful member of society if that's in opposition to who you authentically are and who you authentically are as someone who's not going to cause harm to people but just wants to live in your truth and in your happiness i just thought you get to live once why on earth would you not do that so i've had to do lots of quiet negotiating with the people in my life to get to where I am now. And it's not been easy, but I do think it's deeply corrosive. And we've seen stories in the media of people who do wear those masks and who do perform those roles. And then it it ends horrifically in many ways. And if it doesn't, it ends in a life where you look back and you just think, I had this one life and I didn't live it how I wanted to. I didn't write that novel. I didn't live in that country. I didn't marry that person I wanted to marry. And it's just, I just don't want to be regretful, basically. As ethnic minorities, we often talk about code switching to help us kind of navigate our way through a predominantly white environment that we find ourselves in. And we often talk about how draining that is. But what about when you're code switching within your own family to navigate through that? Is it draining or is it just natural and you just know that that's what you have to do? I think it's both. I think it's natural and it comes to people naturally, but I think it also does drain you and it stops, I think, relationships being as as fulfilling as they could be. You know, I sometimes see my friends who are like best friends with their parents and their parents know everything about their lives. And I think you're exactly as you are with your partner, with your friends, as you are with your parents or your grandparents or your siblings. And I find that so beautiful. And I hope one day I can have a family like that. But I also think it's it's something that you don't just see in in immigrant families or South Asian Indian Gujarati families. I think something that you see in lots of different situations where you do code switch in different ways. You know, I think of lots of my friends, the way they speak to their partner would be very different to the way they speak to their grandmother, you know, um, and that's a kind of quiet code switching. But you're right, you know, I certainly have code switched a lot in my in my own life. And it was something, again, that was causing me a great sense of dissonance and disconnect. And it made me feel really disingenuous um, within myself when I would speak a certain way, you know, when I was at university and come home. And I think just coming to terms with that and being at peace with it and accepting it as well, it was really important to me, was just accepting that this is how it is and not letting it drain me and just seeing it as just like, this is this is how it goes. What do you think you've lost in becoming who you want to be? Do you think there's a price you've paid for that? I think it's a beautiful price because I think the things that I've let go of in my life and the things that I've lost are things that weren't serving me or that weren't meant to be in my life. I see it like that. I, I, I'm very much someone who forces myself to believe what is meant for you will come to you. And when I think about it logically, I, I you know start questioning that. But I try and wholeheartedly believe it because I think it's probably like the easiest way to live your life, which is just like, if it's meant for you, it will come to you. So the things that I've lost in my life because I've had to make choices about how I want to live my life and I want to be a writer, I want to live a certain way, etc., I've been okay with losing them because there's been this bigger thing that I want to do. But then there's also been things in my life, you know, relationships or friendships or places that I've had to leave or lose or, you know, move on from because I wanted to 
to do this and be an author and live the kind of life I want to live that I've been harder to let go of. But I do very much see it as just like a journey of evolving and just progressing. I think of like how easily I could have not applied to the Murky Books New Writers Prize, which is how I ended up writing and, and editing and publishing this book. I so nearly didn't apply to it. And I think about the chance of what might have happened if I hadn't. But I, then I think it wouldn't have happened any other way. Like it was the perfect place for this novel to, to come into the world. What's the criteria you attach to a perfect sentence? You know, I am at the stage when I write that I feel like I allow things to flow and come and like appear authentically because I feel like if I try and write the perfect sentence with the intention of writing the perfect sentence, it would be terrible for me, I, I write from the heart, I write authentically, I live within the characters. And then when I edit, I go back and I think, right, how can I tell the reader what I want to tell them using language that's so precise that I use as little of it as possible? That for me is a perfect sentence. When I read hearing her father described through the prism of her son's devotion to him had nudged something inside of her, clearing space for a love that she didn't think could grow any bigger. I was actually blown away by that. Thank you. I actually you. <laughs> read it and there's a number of examples of that in the book where you just, I marvel at your art, quite frankly. Which, Thank um, you. That really does mean a lot. I know you're finding it difficult to take these kind of compliments on board, but uh, they are sincere, but you're going to have to learn to live with it. Sorry, Jodi, <laughs> but that's that's your life from now on. <laughs> Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Thank I don't you. know if you're aware of uh, Rick Rubin wrote a book that the kind of super successful record producer called The Creative Act. And one of the things he said, and he's talking about music artists, Jyoti, but I think it applies to novelists as well, is that the people least able to deal with the criticism that comes with creating art, create art. I just agree with that 100%. I agree with it so much. And I I did a master's in creative writing and this was actually something that I would say every week to, to my friends when they would come out of workshops crying. I would say, by definition, we feel the most because we're writers. We're the most sensitive and yet we put ourselves in these positions to be absolutely annihilated. And art itself is so subjective. Like that sentence that you just read out, someone else on the tube who's having a bad day would, would skip over it and think, I really don't know what that means. There's too many words in that. You know, it's so subjective. And people who create art, like we say, do feel the most. That's why we do what we do is because we feel the full spectrum of emotions and can transcribe that and push that into the form of art in a way that other people aren't interested in doing or just can't do. It's a risk that you take and it's a position you put yourself in for the sake of creating on itself, like the expectation of wanting to be, you know, well-received or highly esteemed or all of that. You just have to let go of it and create for the sake of creating. And then if it, if people enjoy it, it's just an absolute cherry on top. Because I think you can get in your own way a lot as well, worrying about how your art's going to go down. But yeah, thank you for bringing that up because it's something that I, I feel every day when I'm writing. Uh, well, you'll have to thank Rick Rubin for that. He just crystallised how it feels, I think, for everybody. And and the fact that you've accentuated that with people crying while they come out of creative absolutely. workshops. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's any sort of establishment where you're trying to teach art, I think, will have someone in a corner somewhere crying who's thought they've they've created something that's so perfect from their soul and they've been absolutely massacred for it. Did you find it daunting 
trying to create the atmosphere of this deep love that exists between Avani for her son, Nick. Did you find that daunting or did that come naturally to you to write that relationship? I definitely found it daunting and I think it would be really arrogant to to try and write any relationship if you haven't lived it yourself or any experience and not be humble enough to say it's daunting and to want to really do the research. There was a lot in this book. I mean, it's totally a piece of fiction, even though it draws from things that I felt in my life, all the things that happen in it are fictional and the family is. And I did so much research on grief, on what it's like to be an 18-year-old boy, what it's like to be a 45-year-old mother who's a widow, um, what it's like to live through the things that Avni lived through in the 70s and 80s. And um, it was incredibly daunting to write an authentic relationship between a mother and son. But also I wanted to write it outside of all of the stereotypes that we see in, in, in literature. When we are allowed to exist in art in the Western world, it's so full of stereotypes. And I wanted Avni and Nick's relationship not to be one that falls into stereotypes. Now, let's get into the objects part of our conversation because we always ask our guest authors to bring a few things to talk to us about on the Penguin podcast. Something that changed you, and this is about writing, but writing from the ages of 16 to 26, and potentially, and please correct me if I'm wrong, writing things that you probably haven't looked at since. Absolutely. So it's it's my journals. So when I was a teenager, I read Anne Frank's diary, as most teenagers do. And a couple of years later, I was always thinking I want to have a journal, I want to write. But and I was obviously always had a dream to be an author. And I knew many writers do keep journals. And also this was many years ago before it was journaling was like a self-care thing. It was it was back when people would refer to it as like a diary and it was slightly like embarrassing even to do it. But when I was 16, I was gifted a really gorgeous paper blanks journal by a friend. And I thought, right, this is it. I'm going to start keeping one. And I wrote journals from when I was 16 until I started writing this book at 26. And it's only really when I was preparing for this podcast that it dawned on me how much what I was writing in those journals allowed me to build my voice as a fiction writer, really. Because when I turn to Avni's passages, the ones that are more poetic and lyrical and a little bit more literary than Nick's fast-paced, sort of more um, dialogue-driven passages, when I look at Avni's, so much of the tone and the style and what I'm exploring, looking back retrospectively on her life and how she's come to the moment she's come to, that all really has come from the techniques that I was subconsciously crafting and honing writing journals as a kid and thinking back looking back at the experiences thinking back at the things that niggled at me and that I couldn't quite understand and trying to articulate them and finding the most precise ways of articulating those and I think those journals really made me a writer in so many ways and you're right I've never looked back at them and I don't think I ever will but I just yeah I'm really grateful to 16 year old me for for doing that for sticking with it and for genuinely enjoying doing it as well. Do you not think that there's potentially there a gold mine of future novels? I think more time would need to pass for me to have the bravery to go back. Even though I'm 30 years old now, you know, thinking about 16-year-old me, she feels like a different person, but at the same time, too soon. I feel like perhaps when I'm like 40 or 50, another couple of decades away, I might go back and think, right, I've run out of ideas now. Let's have a look at what, what little Jodhi had to say. <laughs> now, somewhere... 
you were happy. And you really are an internationalist, aren't you? And surprisingly, because we've talked about Gujarat and we've talked about Bangalore and we've talked about India, but we haven't talked about France. So why France? Yeah, so my dad had a massive affinity with France and specifically Paris. He's lived all over the world and he said to me, you know, not so long ago that like Paris was the one place that he truly felt accepted and at home um, in sort of the the 90s and yeah, the early 90s when he lived there, the late 80s. And I was born there. I was born just outside of Paris. And even though my parents moved back to England and then to Bangalore within a year of me being born, I returned to Paris pretty much a couple of times a year through school, through family. And I had such an affinity with France in a way that I can't even ironically articulate clearly yet um when every time I go back I just feel like I'm home and when you ask me like a home away from home Paris and France is is somewhere that also does come to mind for the opposite reason of what I answered just because of the place and the culture as opposed to the people and when I go there and within a couple of days of being there my French comes back and it just feels like a totally magical place and I hadn't been there for a while because of the pandemic, but I went back last May, actually, on my own for a week to the south of France to edit my novel. And swimming every day, speaking in French every day, making friends, eating food, writing and reading, I just thought this is it. Like, this is how I want to live my life, (laughs) is is just being in France, reading, writing. And I really do want to. One of the things I'm trying to work towards is within the next couple of years, like just taking, you know, a couple of months and just going and living there. Because that place just brings me so much joy in a way that I just can't articulate. I just feel like all of me is just at peace and feels like it's where it's meant to be when I'm there. It's just a very special place to me. Did that inspire the feelings at the beginning of the novel, the things that we lost when Jyoti is with her brother and her boyfriend and they're in a car and she says, this is the happiest. So you just said Jyoti, but I think you mean Avni. Um, Avni, sorry. I said Jyoti, yeah, sorry. Sorry, yeah, Avni, of course I mean Avni. Did it inspire that feeling? I think, yeah, I think I've had that moment in various times of my life. And certainly when I was in the south of France last year, editing and swimming and reading and just existing, um, it was certainly one of those moments. And What I wanted to show in that prologue that you mentioned is a moment of pure happiness and joy and peace. And I can certainly see, yeah, how those two things link. And it was actually, it's interesting that you mentioned the prologue because it was the last thing that I wrote in the whole novel. It was actually my agent who said it would be really good to you show these characters, you know, as they're as they're adults and we meet them, but won't it create some beautiful tension for the reader to see them at a point when they're younger, when they're so free and happy before the weight of life has come to them and and destroyed them in so many ways. You know, let's see who they are when they're at their height of joy. So it was really nice to give them that moment in the book too, to show Chan before he becomes the man he is, to show Maya, Avni, Elia all just existing and being so deeply joyful and excited for life. Mm. Let's move on to a song that moves you, Jyoti, and I promise I won't get Avni and Jyoti mixed up again. <laughs> Entirely different people. Jyoti, tell us about a song that moves you. So I chose The Great Gig in the Sky by Pink Floyd because it was a song that I grew up hearing so much. My dad would blast it through the house, whether we were in Bangalore or London, wherever we were, I just remember this song being like the thread of like my childhood 
But it was it wasn't until I was a teenager that I really listened to it. And it's a song that whenever I get stuck when I'm writing and I don't know how to articulate something or I don't know, I can't crystallize a feeling that I want to articulate. I listen to this song because for me, it is every emotion. It is life and death and joy and happiness and love and heartbreak. It is every emotion and every experience and a whole life lived in a song. And it's so much more than a song. It's like an experience, you know, it's, it's everything. And I think it's something that really unlocks me as a writer when I hit a wall or when I can't quite reach into what I need to get to when I need to write. So there are so many songs in the novel too, because music's such an important part of my life and an important part of what built me. And I wanted to show how music builds these characters and makes them who they are. It was so hard for me to just pick one song, but I think that's a song that's been with me the longest and that continues to move me in the greatest way. Let's move on to a piece of architecture, something that reminds you of home, but not only a piece of architecture, but the fact that you mentioned the North Circular, which nobody, (laughs) nobody would, I think, attach to feelings of sentimentality or nostalgia. Most people are annoyed by the A406 on a daily basis, twice daily basis usually. Absolutely. And it actually features in the novel too. I mentioned Nick learning how to drive on the A406 because um, it's, it's got that special place in my heart that it's even been immortalised in my novel. But um, yeah, I chose the Wembley Stadium arc as this, this thing that just makes me, reminds me so much of home and Because I think for so long I lived, you know, outside of London and I would drive home every weekend and whether I've been abroad and I'm coming back in a cab or whether I'm literally driving back to London from living outside of it for so many years, the moment where I would feel this rush of God, I'm home was when I would see the Wembley Arc, the Arc of the Stadium as I was, you know, turning that corner in the A406. And even now I live in North London when I go back to Northwest to visit my parents and my family and so many of my loved ones who are still around Wembley, Harrow, those parts of London which are in the book. When I see that arc, I just feel like I'm home. I feel like I'm safe. And it's almost like my shoulders just inch a little bit lower down. And I just feel that relaxed feeling that you feel when you're home. Um, And it's so strange because I know that that arc has got so much meaning for football fans and for so many different kinds of people. But for me, it just means a cup of chai. It means a cup of peppermint tea with my mom. It means like seeing all my my loved ones. No matter where I've lived, it's it's always signified home. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I I lived in Dollis Hill for many years, that part of Northwest London, Wilsdon Green and Dollis Hill. Exactly. And we used to go to Harrow quite a lot for um, some very good, as you well know, Sri Lankan vegetarian restaurants in Harrow. Uh, It's a it's a great part of London, an amazingly buzzy part of London as well. It must have been quite interesting when you were in Norfolk. I mean, the juxtaposition between those two places. Yeah, it was It was a huge... Um, the only reason I went there really was for university. So I studied English with creative writing for my undergrad because the UEA there is so well known for creative writing. And then really I stayed is, yeah. and went back and did my master's on like the big creative writing course there. And 
basically as soon, even before I finished that master's, I was back in London. I was like, I'm going to do my undergrad, work for a couple of years. And as soon as I finished the master's, I was like, I'm done with this place. I'm going back home. But even when I lived there, I would I would come home every weekend because, and that's why, why I mentioned the A406, just because it is such a juxtaposition. And it's interesting because Norfolk has had so much time in, in literature. It's mentioned in so many novels, whether it's books set there or whether it's people going on long weekends there. But Wembley and Harrow and those parts of London haven't seen, they're either romanticised because of the school in Harrow, but real Harrow, Wembley, you know, driving on the A406, Friday, like all those roads that I know so well, I've never seen in, in books. And that's why I wanted to bring them into this novel too, because there's so many British Gujaratis and South Asians who live there. Um, and it's, I feel like it's just been a big part of becoming who I am, is, is Northwest London, my part of Northwest London. Um, lastly, something that you cherish, and uh, well, it's a very famous literary classic. Tell us about this, Jyoti. Yeah, so it's a very, very battered copy of um, The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And I wrote in my notes to you that I really try and avoid mentioning classics when I do interviews, because I just feel like we've talked about them so much. We've talked about how brilliant they are. And it turns into an echo chamber and there's so little room for, for contemporary writers, specifically contemporary writers from marginalised backgrounds that I prefer to, to talk about. But in this interview, I'm going to give myself a couple of minutes to talk about this book and why it was so important to me. And I, I discovered actually when I was looking through it just before this interview that I belonged to my stepmother and she gave it to me again. I keep coming back to when I was about 15, 16, because it was such a transformative couple of years for me. And I found this book at that age and it was such a formative experience for me reading the novel and it's so nice now to see my earnest little notes in the margins trying to analyse it but it was the book that I read that made me want to write I'd read so many books and thought this would be great I'd love to be a writer but reading this book really made me think seriously about what it would be like to be an author and it made me want to look into gothic literature look into romantic literature and those were my gateways into truly falling in love with the art of literature and the art of writing. So every time I walk past this battered old copy that's been handed down, you know, who knows who it belonged to even before my stepmother, and it's so well-loved and so dog-eared, every time I walk past it on my bookshelf, I just think of my whole journey as a writer and how it started so many years before I read this book, it was a massive catalyst reading this story. And I think it is a cliche because it's so many writers say that, but it's the truth for me. And I'm so attached to this battered, loved copy of Dorian Gray because I can see, you know, 15, 16 year old me trying so hard to understand it. And it's a world that's so different to mine, but it, the way the story's told and the lyricism of the writing, everything just moved me in a way that I hadn't been moved I hadn't been moved in that way yet. And it really, truly made me want to be a writer. And in, well, a hundred years time, the things that we lost, someone will be holding that up and saying, yeah, here's this book that changed my life when I was 16 years old. I mean, that would be, be amazing, incredible. Wouldn't it? it would be incredible. And but I it really, already has. It's been really, really beautiful, the journey so far. And I really, truly did write that book from a very pure place in my heart and I didn't write it for it to be big or for it to sell or thinking it ever would even be published and I genuinely wrote it for all like this 15 or 16 year old British Gujaratis who just couldn't see themselves and all the 20 year olds and 30 and 40 year olds all of us who just couldn't see ourselves in books so 
It's just so incredibly special. Since the things that we lost have encompassed so many of the big questions that you've asked about your own identity, the identity of those around you, the interaction of those people around you, and as you rightly point out, pushing forward a very British Gujarati experience. Where do you go next? It's a great question. And it's interesting as well, because this is the first piece of writing I've, I've written since I was a kid. And, you know, I, I wrote more seriously in my early 20s, but this was the first proper novel I wrote. It's also the first story I've ever written with British Gujarati characters in it. I was part of that very cliched, but very real trope of the writer who's never seen themselves in, in literature, so they never think they're allowed to exist. That was certainly me. So many writers have, have spoken about that. But this was the first book I ever wrote with a British Gujarati family. And to answer your question, I don't know how I could ever write. I'm sure I will one day, but at the moment, I can't see how I could write a story really that doesn't have a British Gujarati element to it because it's such a rich culture and there's so much to say and it's so authentically me and even though I write fiction and even though I want to explore things I've never experienced because they're interesting to me like I do in this novel writing from it from a place of a Gujarati British protagonist I think is always going to be something that interests me because even though it's fiction and it's not real and I'm exploring something that roots it in something that I can understand and it makes it rooted in, in something that I could relate to and that I can come from from a place of authenticity. So the next book, which I'm currently working on, also follows a British Gujarati family. Oh, it's also about family secrets. But this book, The Things That We Lost, is quite it's quite dark and it, it's quite a sad book in many ways. And the next one, I want it to be light and free and just a little bit more witty and joyous. I want to just try a different style of writing, basically, even though I want, still want it to be beautifully and thoughtfully put together. I want it to be a different experience writing it and a different experience for the reader too, much more fun and uplifting and witty. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I cannot wait to read it because this book is just beautiful. Jyoti, thank you so much. I've massively enjoyed talking to you. It's everything I wanted it to be and more. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a joy and such an honour to be here. So thank you. Now, thank you for listening wherever you are. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Jyoti's work, head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and I shall see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>